Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Are you ready for the word? Someone say yes. Today, we are concluding this series we've been in for the last five weeks called Personal Exodus, Lessons from the Wilderness, where we've been talking about the Israelites' great exodus from Egypt. Uh, This season of time specifically that they spent in the wilderness for 40 years where they were tested, where they were tried, where they were refined. And God's intention for all of the testing was to get them ready for the promised land he was calling them into, out of slavery and into freedom, out of the past and into the promise, out of bondage and into his blessing and into his provision. And in this season of the wilderness, his intention was to get them ready. But as we've seen every single week, they failed time and time again. They, they failed the tests, they resisted God, they, they started to doubt what he had for their future, and as a result of that, they ended up digging their own grave, as we saw last week, in the wilderness, and an entire generation of people, millions of them, died in the desert, never laying hold of what God had for their future. And the purpose for this series, the reason we've been going through this in kind of painstaking detail, is because we don't wanna repeat the same mistakes that our ancestors did. We don't want to become those who die off in a desert and never lay hold of what God has for us. We actually want to make it into his promises for our life. We actually believe that God is always calling us out of something and into something else. Out of our old mindsets, out of our broken mentalities, out of our past, out of our sin, and into freedom, into blessing, into provision, into purpose. But in order to walk into those things, we need to learn, as we've said every single week, how to wander our wilderness season well. And wandering well entails not repeating the mistakes of our ancestors. So we've talked about how to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit as we talked about the cloud uh, of fire uh, that was by day and by night. We talked about how to be daily gatherers of the word of God as we talked about manna. Uh, My wife brought a message about making the bitter water sweet and how we're supposed to look to the tree. Uh, We talked about kicking cows off of a stage and how to not bow down to the idols of our culture. And then last week we talked about how to have the right however in our heart and how to be people of faith, which proved to be a very timely message in light of everything that we're facing as a city and as a nation right now. And I hope that you were stirred to begin to declare some things out in faith and not in fear as you were spoon fed plenty of it this week. Uh, But today, as we conclude, we're going to talk about the last great failure of the wilderness. And It was not a failure of the people. Uh, This one comes by way of their leadership, specifically the man, the myth, the Moses, his great failure in the wilderness. And if you're looking for a title, uh, I wanna call this chat today, Talk to the Rock. Talk to the Rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, um, but uh, we'll see in just a moment what I mean by that. Why don't we pray and we'll get into it. Jesus, we love you this morning. We thank you for faith. God, we thank you that we are not governed by Uh, what we hear around us, what we see around us, but there is something steadfast in the heart of every believer that says, regardless of what's happening outside this room and what's happening outside of my community, I I can build my life on the foundation of Christ Jesus because he is unshakable. And God, I just pray over the next couple of moments, there would be a special blessing for every single person that's in the room today to overcome what we overcame, to be in the house of God today. I pray that you would honor those decisions and that you, we would receive something fresh. God, a, a new vision, some new clarity, a new hope inside our hearts. Whatever we need today, we thank you that you are more than able to provide for us. 
And as we conclude this series, God, I pray that anyone walking through a season right now where they're wandering a bit, where they're trying to figure out what the next step to take is, Holy Spirit, speak clearly to them this morning. Let them leave here with directive. Let them leave here with, with the next steps uh, so that, that we can wander this season well and so that we can lay hold of everything you have for us. In the great name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen, amen. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 20. And uh, let me give you a little bit of backdrop, a little bit of context as we go there today. So as, as we go to the text, we're gonna find the Israelites now at the tail end of their 40-year journey. Uh, they've been wandering for the last 40 years, and they show up now at a place called Kadesh, which is the same location we studied last week where they showed up in year two and the spies were sent out into the promised land to take a look at what, it was, uh, what, what God had promised them and bring back a report. And as you know, they brought back the negative report. And so an entire generation did a U-turn. They headed back into the wilderness to the Red Sea and many of them died. And so we find ourselves now again at that exact same location, but with a different group of people. Same place, new generation. Now, 38 years later, the, the children, the next generation of those who rejected God's promise, find themselves once again at the threshold of the promised land, looking into what God has for their future. And they're about to face a test that their parents faced. Now their parents are dead, but now they're going to experience some of the testing, some of the trying that mom and dad felt, the, the thirst test. See, for the last 40 years, God has provided water for his people, but as they show up now at Kadesh again, their water source runs dry. Uh, this was not a new test for the leaders. Moses and Aaron, they had, they'd been through this kind of a test before. The first time, as you know, we, we talked about it in week uh, three, when the waters were bitter and they could not drink, God told Moses to throw a tree in the waters of Mara and he made him sweet, became potable and the whole community could drink. And then later, when the community was without water, God told Moses to take his, his staff and to strike a rock. And when he struck that rock, water began to gush out, enough water to take care of the needs of two and a half million people, a supernatural act. And we're told in scripture that that rock actually followed the Israelites through the desert for the next 40 years and provided for all of their water drinking needs. Well, now as they show up to the promised land, that water source runs dry and, and we get a peek into how the people respond as they find themselves once again without water. Numbers chapter 20, verse two says, there was no water for the people to drink at that place. So they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. The people blamed Moses and they said, if only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into this wilderness to die along with all of our livestock? Why'd you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, no water to drink. Our pets' heads are falling off. This is a horrible place. Like, this is a millennial complaint, okay? Let's just look at this for a moment. The previous generation was like, we have no food, we have no water. Very simple needs. Now the next generation's like, there's no pomegranates, there's no figs, there's no self-care stations, there's no Wi-Fi. Moses, what's the deal? How did you bring us out here to die? And then they make the statement, if only we had died in Egypt. Let me pause here for just a moment and let me appeal to some parents in the room. How many of you have kids? Okay, how many of you want kids? How many of you don't want your kids? No, don't say that. <laughs> yeah, to the parents in the room, let me just remind you of, of something that we see here very clearly in this text. Uh, your kids, they're watching and they're listening. They hear everything that comes out of your mouth. They watch everything that you do. And sadly, often our kids repeat those things that embarrass us the most. 
Have you experienced that before? Like, you know, your kid is just randomly talking to someone that you invited over to the house and they're like, my mommy and daddy, they love wine. They drink it a lot. And you're like, whoa, uh, that's not what I want my guests to know. Like, my kids repeat some of the things that I, I really don't want them to repeat. And, and they can't help it. That's what they've heard me say. Like, I listen to worship music constantly in my car and we sing worship music in the car with our kids. But that's not what they repeat. You know what they repeat? They repeat what I say to the driver in front of me at the stoplight when they're looking at their cell phone. Literally happened to me the other day. Like, we're sitting there, someone doesn't go when the light turns green, and my kid's like, this moron. And I'm like, whoa, yo, where did you hear? Oh, that's right, yeah, it was from me. Your kids will repeat what they hear you say when you stub your toe around the house. They will repeat what you say about those people in our society your opinions that you've formed about certain groups of people. They'll repeat what you say about that family member after you hang up the phone. They'll repeat what you say about your boss. They will repeat what you say about your political leaders. They hear everything and they will repeat it. This group of, of Israelites, it's a new generation. These were the kids of the previous ones. They don't remember Egypt. Most of them were barely a couple years old when their family left Egypt. Some of them weren't even born in Egypt. They were born in the wilderness during the last 38 years. And yet they make the same statement that their parents made when they were out of water. If only we had died in Egypt. Child, you don't even know what Egypt was like. You weren't a slave in Egypt. That was your mom, that was your dad. But they're just regurgitating what they heard their parents say. So to those of you who have children, Smarty, Brandon, those of you with new babies, listen to me carefully. Let's be careful what our children hear around the house. Let's be careful what comes out of our lips because they might be developing uninformed opinions about society, about the church, about people, without having any real framework to operate thereby, just because that's what they heard mom and dad say. Be careful what you let your kids see. That was free. Moving on. Numbers 20, verse six, Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and they went to the entrance of the tabernacle where they fell face down on the ground. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them and the Lord said to Moses, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock. Someone say speak. Speak to the rock over there and it will pour out its water. You'll provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord and then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen here, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Isn't it interesting that Moses takes the responsibility of God? Must we all of a sudden, he thinks he's got something that he never had in the beginning. And Moses raised his hand and he struck. Someone say struck. Struck the rock twice with the staff and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will no longer lead them into the land that I am giving them. He, he was supposed to speak to a rock, but he, he struck a rock. Now, up until this moment, Moses has been the shining example of, of grace, of poise under pressure. He's been the bastion of holiness, like no one compares to Moses. It says in, in, in the scripture that he was the most humble man to ever live which is an interesting statement because he's the guy that wrote the book and he wrote it about himself, but I digress. 
Other than the one time when Moses broke the Ten Commandments in anger, when he came down from the top of Mount Sinai and saw the people worshiping idols, Moses has, has been calm and collected, and every time the people did something wrong, he responded by interceding on their behalf. He went to the presence of God, and he, he prayed for the people. But it appears in this particular story that Moses has finally hit his threshold. He, he's finally lost it. After wandering for 40 years with a group of angry people in the desert, he's, he's snapped. Says that he looks at the people and he says, listen here, you rebels. Always a great way to open up a sermon, by the way. He says, must we bring water from this rock for you? And then in his aggression, his anger turns physical and he begins to beat this rock, not, not once, but twice. He just starts yelling and hitting this rock. It's a, it's a temper tantrum. A tantrum that is tantamount to the cinematic genius of Tom Cruise, Jerry Maguire. I'm not going to do what everybody thinks I'm going to do and just free out. I just want to know who's coming with me. It's kind of that moment in the desert. And by your lack of laughter, I assume that many of you have never seen that movie. So <laughs> let's go with uh, Chevy Chase and Christmas Vacation when he doesn't get his bonus. All right, that's... That's what we're looking at here. He just freaks out and begins to strike this rock. And God says to Moses and to Aaron, because you did not follow what I asked you to do, because you did not demonstrate my holiness, that is to say you inappropriately displayed my character to my people, no longer will you be the leader to take my people into the promised land. I know that you have spent the last 40 years of your life chasing this promise down, but because of this moment, you have disqualified yourself and you have forfeit the promised land. It's a tragic end to this Old Testament hero's story. The guy that God used to bring two and a half million people out of slavery and into the promised land while they made the wrong decision all throughout the wilderness jury, one moment, one wrong decision, and Moses disqualifies himself. Now, I don't mean to sound irreverent or to question God's decision, but as I read this story, maybe as you read this story, I gotta ask a question. Doesn't this seem like a pretty extreme punishment? Doesn't this seem like a pretty severe response? Like, God, Moses is a pretty good dude. I mean, if we're grading on a curve, he's done pretty well in the desert, right? Like, he, he's done everything that God asked him to do. Remember that one time when, when, when God said to Moses, when the people rebelled and they built the golden calf, he's like, hey, listen, Moses, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little tired of these people. I will kill every single one of them right now, and we will start over with you, all right? We'll just build a whole new generation out of you. And Moses' response was, God, no, don't kill the people. What would people say about your character? And he begins to intercede for the very people that are making his life a living hell. I wouldn't have responded like that. Like, you're gonna kill all of them? The, the guys that are gonna give me trouble, you're gonna kill all of them, you're gonna start over with me? Pfft, kill him. Like, that's, but not Moses. Moses has made the right decision over and over and over and over again. So this this punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. It seems a bit severe considering what he's done. 
But I think all punishment always feels severe in the moment, doesn't it? Like all punishment feels like this is a little too much. How many remember being a child and just as you were being disciplined, thinking to yourself, this is too much. I don't deserve this level of treatment. I, it wasn't really that bad. I remember thinking that all the time as a kid. How many of you were spanked when you were a kid? Praise God. <laughs> I'm in the right room of people. That's what's wrong with the next generation. They didn't get spanked when they were growing up. I think I'm better off because I got spanked. I sure, I, I wince a little bit when Robin has a spoon in the kitchen occasionally, but other than that, I think I'm totally fine. Like, <laughs> but, but it wasn't the spankings that, that I always felt was like too much punishment. Uh, I, was, I was talking to my youngest daughter the other day and uh, she had just stayed the night at my parents' house and uh, she began to tell me that my folks had shared with her some of the disciplinary tactics that they deployed on my sisters and I <laughs> when we were younger and shared some of the ways that we got in trouble. And it got my mind thinking again, I'm like, oh, I need to be a little more creative with my discipline. Like, my parents were very creative discipliners. Uh, I remember when we, uh, we said things we weren't supposed to say, we, we used uh, unkind language or profane language. Uh, I, I think I got my mouth washed out once or twice with soap, but when that didn't work, we got a spoonful of cayenne pepper. That was awesome, just like, oh, uh, burns both ways. Uh, I remember one time when I got caught stealing money from my family, uh, I got a haircut which doesn't sound like a really devastating punishment, but for me, I had the best haircut at the time. I had these really awesome stairs on the side of my head, and I had this little rat tail that I used to like grow out, and I'd braid, I think I have a photo of it actually, if you wanna take a, yeah, come on. So I'd, I'd like throw that little rat tail over my shoulder. I just thought I was a model with this haircut. It was amazing. Please take that off the screen. And, uh, and my punishment for stealing from my parents was they cut the rat tail off. And I was devastated because it took me so long to grow that thing out. And as a memorial to my rat tail, I put it inside a Ziploc bag and I pinned it to my wall. And I would look at it and I would just cry because it wasn't attached to my head any longer. Very creative punishment. But uh, the one thing that would not be tolerated in the Biddle household growing up was dishonesty. You could not be dishonest. That was, that was not an option. And anytime one of us got caught lying, my, my dad had made this cardboard sign and he wrote on the front of it in Sharpie, I will always tell the truth. And uh, he fastened a orange ribbon to it so that it could be worn as a necklace. And as I'm looking at our Dream Team badges, they're much like our Dream Team badges. I knew there was a reason I didn't like our Dream Team badges, but anytime one of us was dishonest, we'd have to wear this sign that said, I would always tell the truth. And they swear that we never had to go out in public with that thing or go to school, but I seem to remember otherwise than as, as a child growing up. Very creative disciplinary tactics. Now, as a kid, every time I, I received punishment or discipline, I always thought, this is way too much. This is severe. This is cruel and unusual. And then I had kids. And I totally get it. Because <laughs> I, I, I've thought about ways to discipline my children to try to get it to stick. And I can neither confirm nor deny that I might have deployed similar tactics on my own children. <laughs> all, all punishment feels severe in the moment. All punishment feels like too much. And I would imagine that Moses probably felt like, God, this, this seems like a, a really severe punishment for what I just did. I've been following you for the last 40 years. I've given my life to this. Even when it felt uncomfortable, I still did what you asked me to do. I've been obedient every single step of the way. 
this is a, this is a one-time offense and, and you're taking this one-time offense and using it as leverage to, to keep me out of the thing I've been living my life for? The future, the promise, the plan? God, th this is too much. And although the text doesn't say this, I would imagine if Moses is anything like us, he probably had this question in his heart. Can't, can't you just give me another shot? Can't I get a, another chance at this thing? And if Moses had articulated that question to God, I believe God would have responded back to Moses and said, but I did. I did give you a second shot and, and you missed it. Allow me to explain. The text tells us why God keeps Moses and Aaron out of the promised land. It says that they did not trust him enough to display his holiness before the people. It was an issue of faith. Same faith we discussed last week. It's impossible to lay hold of the promises of God without faith. Faith is an imperative. We must believe before we see. We must be convinced in our hearts of what God says to us. And that is the very thing necessary to walk into the promised land. When we lose faith, we lose our right to the future. But what may not be so obvious by the text is the grace, the mercy, the love, and the opportunity that God gave Moses to make the right decision, to repent and to do the right thing. Because in true God fashion, it is not one strike and you're out. Let me ask when God told Moses to speak to the rock, how, how many times did Moses strike the rock? Twice. Come on, you can say it, it's okay. Twice, yeah, two. He struck the rock twice. That means that he struck the rock, rock once and nothing happened. Let me say that again. <laughs> that means he hit the rock one time and noticed that there was no water pouring out and had a decision to make, am I going to strike this rock again or, I'm gonna, or am I gonna do what God asked me to do? He struck it and then he struck it again. Now that might seem like a trivial detail to you, but I think that there's some truth buried right there in the text about God's love, his mercy, and an opportunity to do the right thing. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Conviction lives between the strikes. Conviction lives between the strikes. There was a moment where Moses had to make a decision. After I strike this rock and I notice it's not doing what God said it should do, am I going to go back to the last thing God asked me to do or am I going to hit this rock again and continue down this destructive path of doing the wrong thing? That moment between strikes, it's called conviction. If you need a definition for conviction, it's this. Conviction is that still small voice, the voice of God that whispers to you and says, hey, you're going down a road you shouldn't go down right now. End the relationship. Go see the counselor. Fix the problem. Confess the sin. Let that thing out into the open before you make another bad decision. That's what conviction is. Conviction draws you close to Jesus. Unlike condemnation, which is demonic in nature, that pushes you away from God and comes complete with guilt and shame and keeps you away from church and away from community and away from the place where you can find forgiveness and healing, conviction says, come close, come back to me, make the right decision, I'll wrap my arms around you, I'll give you mercy, I'll give you grace, I'll forgive you, 
I'll launch you back out. Just, just come close to me. That's what conviction is. And every single one of us have had conviction moments between the strikes. A moment where our bad decisions have led us to a place and we have to decide, are we going to continue to make the wrong decision or are we going to choose wisely so that we can do what God has asked us to do? And ultimately so that we can lay hold of what God has for us. It's, it's that moment where the Holy Spirit says to you, hey, I, I, I'm begging you, make the right choice right now. Don't do that again. You know where that leads. And the way we respond in those moments of conviction, they have a drastic impact on our future. For Moses, it literally cost him everything. The plan of God for his life was hanging in the balance. And because he responded inappropriately to conviction, he forfeit everything that God had for him. Now, let me be clear because this needs to be said. This was not an issue of God's love. When Moses made the wrong decision, God loved him exactly the same as he did before he made the wrong decision. His love is unconditional. This wasn't even an issue of eternity. Moses still died and he still went to heaven. We know that because he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's listed among the heroes, heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. When you get to heaven one day, you can fist bump Moses just in case there's coronavirus out there. Actually, not in heaven. But you can say hello to Moses. You guys can talk about all the stuff he did. You can talk about this moment. Like, he's in heaven right now. So this is not an issue of God's love and it's not an issue of eternity, but it is an issue of the things he had stored up for Moses on earth. There was a cost. And there is always a cost to ignoring conviction. There's always a cost to striking again. Let me ask you, what are you willing to forfeit so that you can ignore conviction? What future that God has for you are you willing to abdicate so that you can strike again? Is the family that he has for your future worth ignoring the conviction to fix what's wrong in you so that your family can function correctly? Is the blessing and the provision and the open heavens of God worth ignoring the conviction to give, to tithe, to embrace the discomfort every time someone talks about it from a stage? Is that blessing worth giving up to ignore conviction? Is, is the relationship worth ignoring the conviction of apology and laying down your pride and embracing humility? What, what are you willing to forfeit today so that you can continue to ignore conviction? Because listen, there's always something at stake. And often, it's a far greater promise than you realize. Often the plan of God for your life, the future that he has for you, hangs in the balance of your ability to respond to conviction appropriately, to stop yourself between the strikes and say, you know what, I'm gonna do the right thing this time. And perhaps, maybe, just maybe, God brought you into the room today because you find yourself in a season where you're about to strike again and the Holy Spirit is warning you today, hey, stop. Do not strike again. What's the last thing I told you to do? I have a good future for you. I have a good plan stored up for your life. I have blessings stored up for you. I have freedom stored up for you. But it, it's contingent on the way you respond to this moment. Will you speak? Will you talk to the rock? Or will you strike again? 
Now, maybe there's some people here and you'd say, okay, Pastor Tim, I hear what you're saying, but um, honestly, I, I generally do a pretty good job in that arena. Like I, I, I usually respond when I feel convicted and when the Holy Spirit says something to me, I, I, I respond well and I'm okay in that arena. Okay, to you, I would pose a different question this morning. How's your brother? How's he doing? I don't have a brother. Let's remember, Moses was not the only casualty. Aaron also forfeit his right to enter into the promised land as a result of Moses' decision to strike the rock instead of speak to the rock. And if it doesn't seem fair that God punished Moses, it really doesn't seem fair that God punished Aaron for Moses' decision. Anyone who has siblings knows that it's incredibly unfair to be punished for the actions of your siblings, right? This doesn't seem right. But just as Moses had an opportunity to stop himself between the strikes, so Aaron had an opportunity to stop his brother. Aaron was sitting right there when God spoke to Moses and said, hey, speak to the rock. Take the staff, but speak to the rock. And yet, knowing what God said to do, Aaron stood there silently while his good old brother Moses began to beat on the rock. He, he, he just... He just sat there. If you're taking notes, write this down. Silence is compliance. Silence is compliance. Martin Luther King made this statement. He said, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. Powerful statement. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. And such was the case in this story. Silence was not only a betrayal to the command of God, but it was a betrayal to his brother Moses. And God saw his silence as this complicit behavior, almost co-signing on what Moses did. And now I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, really, Tim? Like, now you're just trying to make me feel guilty, okay? Like, the first time, okay, yeah, I get it. But really, are you really telling me right now that God holds me responsible for somebody else's actions? That's not my life. I'm not my brother's keeper. I, I shouldn't be held to the standard of, of their life and the decisions that they make. That seems really unfair. However, consider this. What if God has placed you in the crosshairs of that person's life for the very purpose of being the hands, the feet, and the voice of Jesus in their situation? Hey, remember, Jesus isn't walking around this planet quite the same way he was. And you know who he uses? He uses people. He uses his community. He uses those who've claimed him as Lord to speak on his behalf on occasion. Maybe you are sitting in the middle of that person's story because God sent you there so that you can be the siren to warn them, hey, your life is headed down a destructive path. This is not the best way for you to go. God has something better for you. Before you strike again, just, just wait. What's the last thing God told you to do? What does the word of God have to say about this situation? Maybe you are there for such a time as this. 
I believe that there have been some people that have come along in my life in some seasons where I was headed down the wrong road, where I was about to make the wrong decision, and I thank God that they did not remain silent in the midst of that situation, but they opened up their mouth and they said to me, Tim, this is gonna take you down a place you don't wanna go. This is gonna lead down a road that is not God's best for your future. And they corrected me. They said, this is what God says in this moment regarding this situation, and because of that, I was able to repent and turn and begin to move back in the direction of Jesus. And I believe that God uses all of us to do that exact same thing in the relationships with those who he's called us to walk through life with. Now, to be clear, this was Aaron's brother, okay? This was someone who was in the family. This needs to be said. God has not called you to be the moral police of the world, okay? This is not our job as believers to just yap about all the sin that everybody out there is committing. That's not what we're talking about. That is not your job. First Corinthians chapter five makes that very clear. It is not our job to judge unbelievers. But it is our job when we are in relationship with people that we love and that we're walking through life with to call them out on the things that are gonna destroy their lives. Matthew chapter 18, 1 John chapter five. We to call out those things in people if they're heading down a direction where they shouldn't go, then in love we say, hey, this is going someplace that, that isn't God's best for you. Let, 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 me, let me, before you strike again, let me, just, let me just remind you, God has a good plan for your future. Because listen, it's not just their inheritance that's at stake. If we remain silent, we're just as much to blame for our own future and their future. We cannot afford to be silent. Let me remind every single person in the, in the room today, God has a good plan, not just for their future, but for your future. And we should not be willing to abdicate either theirs nor our inheritance because of silence. What, what situation has God called you in the middle of right now? Hey, mom, who's in the middle of her kid's divorce, you gotta speak up. Hey, roommate, who's shacking up with somebody in college who says that they're a believer, but they're making some decisions right now, you cannot afford to be silent in that. Hey, friend and family member of someone who's got that addictive pattern in their life, instead of enabling them, maybe it's time to have a conversation and begin to speak into that situation and say, hey, this isn't God's best for you. Let's, let's find some help. That's our job. That's why God has placed us there. So yeah, yeah maybe, maybe you're the one who responds well to God's conviction, but please don't allow others around you to miss out on God's best for their future because of your silence. Let me end with this, because the clock tells me it's over. <laughs> As we've done in every single one of these sermons, I wanna ask this question and I'll ask the band to come. Where is Jesus in this text? As you've seen from every single one of the, uh, the stories thus far, and as we've stated every week, Jesus is buried in the middle of every single one of these Old Testament stories. He's in the Psalms, he's in the Proverbs, he's in the poems, he's in all of it. Jesus is the central theme of scripture and he is the greater narrative regardless of the narrative we're studying. So, so where is Jesus in the middle of all of this? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Where's Jesus? He's right there. Jesus was the rock 
that provided water for the people in the wilderness. Which brings a little more clarity as to why this punishment was so severe. Because Moses hit Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> because if Jesus was the rock, it explains a little more about why Moses was to speak to the rock and not strike the rock. When God tells Moses to speak to the rock, he asks him to grab the staff, the staff that represented the authority of God. And Moses was very familiar with this shepherd's staff. It's the same staff that he threw on the ground in front of Pharaoh when it turned into a serpent. It's the same staff that he touched the waters of the Nile and they turned to blood. Same staff that when God wanted to release plagues, Moses stirred the dust and gnats went all around the land of Egypt. It's the same staff that he stretched out over the Red Sea and the waters parted so that God's people could walk over on dry ground. It's the same staff Moses held in the air when the enemies came against God's people in the wilderness. And as long as Moses held the staff in the air, there was victory. And consequently, it was the same staff that God asked him to strike the rock with the first time so that it could produce water for the people. But this time he said, I want you to take the staff. Only don't use it, speak to the rock. Don't strike it, just speak to it. Prior to this moment, all of God's promises were predicated on Moses' participation in the process. The staff represented his actions. It represented his works, what he brought to the table. And everything that God did before was done through Moses' participation. But God was doing a new thing in the desert, a new thing that would point to Jesus, and it was not gonna be based on what humans brought to the table. It was gonna be a simple declaration of faith. Once the rock was stricken, it did not need to be stricken again. It only needed to be spoken to. And in the same way that the rock provided water for God's people in the wilderness, so Jesus walks through this wilderness of life with us until one day he leads us into the promised land called heaven. And just as that rock, when it was struck, provided water from the people, so Jesus, after he gave his life on a cross, was pierced in his side and water came from his flesh, signifying that once and for all, a sacrifice was made for humanity and they did not need to put their trust in anything else, but only that moment. For Jesus said of himself in John chapter seven, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and you can drink freely. And just as God told Moses to speak to a rock, not to strike it, not to bring his works to the equation, but to just speak out in faith. So it is not by works we are saved. For the gospel says that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any of us would have a reason to boast about it, but in a simple declaration of Jesus as Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse nine, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Even if everything we've done up until that moment has been sinful, one act of speaking out the name of Jesus will bring us into a preferable future with him. There's Jesus. What's the message of the story? There's always grace. There's always grace available to you. If we'll simply call on the name of Jesus, we will be saved. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.